Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Move forward with the message. I have to take this opportunity to embarrass some people. <laughs> Elaine and Claire, would you stand up, please? Yay. These last couple weeks were pretty eventful for these young ladies. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Elaine had her final Bible quiz on the district, and she came in the top 10 eighth. Was that correct? Fifth. Fifth. All right. All right. And Elaine also participated last this past weekend in Festival of Life. She played volleyball, and she um, uh, competed in the art competition. She placed silver in volleyball. And Claire also had a big day yesterday. She had her final children's quiz on the district, and she placed first. So I'm, I expect the quiz season may not be over for either of them yet. Um, please continue to pray for them as they study and as they, as they glorify God through, through all that they're doing in, in Bible quizzing. Pray that the Lord is shaping their hearts and their minds through his word. Thank you, ladies. So as I mentioned, we are going to look at some more of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to read it all up front. We're going to kind of take it bit by bit because it is kind of long and there's a lot of stuff as usual. Um, there's, there's a lot in these 12 verses we're going to look at. We're going to be focused on Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 12. So that first, those first 12 verses of chapter 7. We only have this week and next week to kind of wrap up the Sermon on the Mount series here. So I'm trying to get a lot into one message. But I think it's, it's good that we're looking at these particular verses together. We tend to look at them in separate sections. Like with most of the Sermon on the Mount, we take it in bits and pieces. It's good that we're looking at how it all connects. And the way that these particular verses are connected isn't just by train of thought or a stream of consciousness. Um, there are parallels that I'm seeing now in, in different parts of this passage that I never really took the time or effort to discover before. So it's not just interesting, but it is, it is transformative, I, I believe. And there is an overarching theme throughout all of this, even though at some, pla some places it may seem a little disjointed, Jesus is trying to say something loud and clear. So first, let's read the first two verses. Matthew 
do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's pretty straightforward, it sounds like. What do you think of when you think of judge, judges, judging? Think of court, yeah? Well, that terminology was used for the courtroom back in those days as well. The word judge here means to separate or distinguish. Distinguish. One who judges attempts to distinguish and separate the innocent from the guilty. Two camps. When we think of judgment, we may also think of Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus talks about when he's going to come back to judge all humanity as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Innocent, guilty, sheep, goats. When it comes to the final destiny of people, Jesus is the judge. He doesn't share that responsibility with anybody. And so Jesus tells his disciples, do not judge. Now Jesus wouldn't tell his disciples not to judge unless that were a danger for them. Unless their human nature would surely tempt them to do just that. Their human nature tempts us, too, as disciples. Notice that Jesus doesn't intend, doesn't intend this to just be a warning when he says, essentially, if you judge anyone else, just be prepared that you... He's not saying, if you're going to judge anyone else, just be prepared that you're going to be judged by the same standard. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying... If you judge, if you do judge, you just, you know, you just got to be prepared. What he's saying is, what he's implying is, do not judge, period. End of sentence. End of command. The role of judge does not belong to us. And if we do try taking that role, there will be consequences. That's what Jesus is saying. Same way you might say, do not murder or you will be punished. He's saying, do not judge or you too will be judged. Have we ever tried separating the sheep and the goats in our mind? Have we ever condemned someone to hell? Maybe you've, at one point in your life, told someone sincerely to go there. Or maybe you're shocked that I would make that suggestion. Even if you haven't, 
In your mind, have you ever elevated yourself above anyone else? Have you ever determined that someone else's shortcomings are more displeasing to God than your own? Have you separated yourself? Have you found yourself dividing the people in your life into the camps of us and them? For example, parents who raised their children right versus those who didn't. Or people who have sinned visibly publicly versus those who haven't sinned publicly, that is. Or people from that congregation or denomination versus people of this congregation or denomination. Have we ever separated people in our minds by that and elevated one group of people above the other? How would you feel if God were to think of you in the same way that you think of those in the other camp? What if God were to think of you the way you think of them? In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's a harsh word. Now keep in mind that when humans judge, we can't, we can't judge appropriately. We can't judge correctly because we can only look at and assess the things that we can look at and assess such as appearance, actions, reputation, whatever's on the outside. If you lived in Jesus' day, you'd probably look at a Pharisee and judge them by what you can see to be squeaky clean, as close to God as a person can get and still have their feet on the ground. But Jesus saw something very different. And if you're curious what he saw, go check out Matthew chapter 23. There was much more to the Pharisees than met the eye. Their outside may have been clean and polished and beautiful, but their inside was neglected and absolutely filthy. Compare that to how Jesus' disciples viewed the tax collector Zacchaeus, for example, or the woman who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and how Jesus treated them. They were a mess on the outside. They had sinned visibly. Everybody knew about their sin and the wrongs that they had done. But inside, they had become a blank slate. They have been washed white as snow. And Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. And Jesus let the woman wash his feet and said, she's doing a beautiful thing for me. Jesus elaborates on these first two verses in verses three through five. Let's read those. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye 
and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat this at all, does he? This pill is hard to swallow. He's talking to his disciples, and he says to his disciples, hypocrites. Oof. I had to look up the definition of hypocrite. Literally means basically one who judges under. Back to the judging thing, right? Back to do not judge. Hypocrite is one who judges under. Um, also, an interpreter. In, in Greek writings, it referred to actors on the stage who wore masks and pretended to be somebody that they're not for purposes of entertainment. I think of the interpreters in places like Colonial Williamsburg, if you've ever been there. The folks who um, sit in the old buildings and wear the old-fashioned clothes and do the old-fashioned things like spinning wool and um, carving furniture by hand. That is their role as interpreter to show how life was back then. But then, at dinner time, they go home and they turn on their electric stove and they sit down and watch some Netflix. Hypocrite is one, is an actor. Jesus repeatedly calls out the Pharisees, whom we previously mentioned, as being hypocrites. Because they go around hiding their real identities behind a mask. They use their, their deeds and their words and the way they present themselves to hide what's going on in their hearts. And a hypocrite is also what he's, what he's calling one of his disciples who doesn't deal with his own massive problems before he fishes around in someone else's eye to get out a tiny splinter. The plank that Jesus is referring to is like the beam of a house, not just like your regular two by four that you pick up from Home Depot. We're talking a big piece of wood here. And the speck, the splinter, is like a little bit of sawdust that blew off the sawmill and landed in someone's eye. Compare those two. Now both the plank and the speck are issues that need to be dealt with. You wouldn't want to go around with a speck of something in your eye, it would drive you bonkers. At least it would drive me bonkers. 
Ultimately, Jesus does direct his disciples to remove that speck. And it's clear from these verses that when Jesus says, do not judge, he doesn't mean don't acknowledge anyone else's sin ever. That's not what he means either. If that other person knows that that speck is there, we should be ready to jump in and help them be rid of it. But first things first. We've got to deal with our own stuff so that we can help others without hindrance. You wouldn't want your carpal tunnel procedure done by a surgeon who has his dominant arm in a cast. Or sometimes it's not a matter of hindrance, but of, of trust. Would you take your car to a mechanic whose own clunker never runs right? Take the plank out of your eye first, then deal with the speck. Seems like common sense. But sometimes we like to point out what we see in others because we can't, we refuse to see what's going on with ourselves first. To realize that maybe we have bigger problems we need to address first. Let's look at verse 6. Jesus changes gears a little bit here. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, where did this thought come from, Jesus? What does this have to do with the previous five verses? Let's see if we can fit the puzzle pieces together. When Jesus is talking about not to give dogs what's sacred, he's clearly not being literal. He doesn't mean don't literally throw your stuff to dogs. Well, that's kind of common sense. In those days, dogs were wild. They were scavengers. They were, um, they were not the household pets that we know today. Um, And pigs were, of course, unclean. So these dogs and pigs, these unclean, feral creatures, stand for those who are enslaved by, their flesh, by the flesh and its desires. Those who are ruled by animal instinct. When they look at meat from a temple sacrifice, which would be holy, dogs would just see food. And if they were to have pigs thrown at them, pigs would probably just be disappointed that they aren't food. To you, these things may be inherently holy and valuable. Like, of course, a pearl is valuable. But to animals, they're nothing special. If these items that you consider holy and valuable don't immediately serve to meet the basic needs of these animals, the items are worthless to the animals. 
It would be foolish to assess the value of a treasure that you have by the opinion of beasts. I'm not saying this, or Jesus isn't saying this, I don't think, so that we can judge others. He's already said, do not judge. But there are those who we can see, who we can discern, are still held captive by the flesh, who, can't, who don't have eyes to see what is holy. Don't give your holy and precious things to those who are incapable of seeing their real worth. Don't try to do with them the heavenly work of getting the speck out of their eye. Don't open up your soul to them in holy vulnerability. Don't expect them to understand your faith. The Holy Spirit makes no sense to them. They can't make heads or tails of it. The Holy Spirit doesn't make a whole lot of sense to anybody who's not experiencing it. Him, I should say. And they don't know any better because they haven't allowed God to teach them any better. And so they will do what animals do, consume or disregard and destroy what you give them. But that's not all. They might well turn on you next. So be careful with what God has entrusted to you as holy and valuable. Not so much stuff like pearls, but what he has made of you. Verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Let's compare for a second verses 1 through 5 with verses 7 through 11. Well, let's just look at verses 1 and 7, really. Verse 1 says, do not judge, which is a command, or you will be judged. This is the result if you disobey that command. Verse 7 says, ask. That's a command. And it will be given to you. That is the result of your obeying the command. And then Jesus goes on to explain, verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. In verse 8, for everyone who asks receives. There's a lot more similarities than those ones, but I won't go on. The passage that says do not judge, it focuses on what we should not do. The passage we just read focuses on what we should do. Who will do the judging? Well, Scripture doesn't exactly spell it out for us. Everything is in like the passive tense, so it doesn't say God will judge you, but it's kind of implied. God will judge you. And God will also be the one whom we ask. 
Ask what? What should we ask for? Let's see what scripture has to say. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. And John says in, in 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he and we know if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So what should we ask for? Anything. Ask for anything. Verses 9 through 11 kind of digs a little deeper. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? That's a rhetorical question. Of course, of course you wouldn't give your son a snake instead of a fish. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In Luke's version of this teaching, good gifts is replaced with the Holy Spirit. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the good gift, and he is holy sacred and infinitely valuable. And he is the one through whom we ask for anything else. He is the one who teaches us to ask for the things that are after God's own heart. When a child asks a parent for anything, they trust their parents will give them what is best. And they rely on their parents to give them those things because they can't get them on their own. And parents, when your child would ask you for anything, still, if your child, if your adult children would ask you for anything, or if your grandchildren would ask you for anything, you would want to give them whatever their heart's desire is, as long as, as long as it's within your power, and as long as it's what's best, what's, it's, it's not going to harm them. If there's no reason why they can't have it. You certainly won't want to give them anything that could foreseeably harm them. How much more should we trust our Father in heaven to give us good gifts? How much the Father loves us, He calls us His children. He loved us enough to adopt us. And he wants to give us good things, but he also wants us to start thinking more like him, to ask for the things after his heart, to mature in our faith in that way. As adults, we don't ask for the same things that we ask for as kids. 
we don't typically ask for ice cream for breakfast, for example. <laughs> because we know that's not what's best for us. The same happens as we grow in our faith. The last verse in this passage. Oops. Goes like this, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So let me, let me put this in um, the uh, New Libby translation here. Jesus is saying, to summarize everything I just said, okay, the things you would like to have others do for you, do for them. Because this is the law and the prophets. That's essentially what the Greek says. This is the law and the prophets. I imagine Jesus right here could do a mic drop and walk off the stage. You remember how the Sermon on the Mount began? Back in chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He came right back around to where he started. And the, the law and the prophets, he's trying to get his disciples to realize the law and the prophets are what he's been teaching this whole time as he's been talking for these last two and a half chapters. This verse, verse 12, is what we know as the golden rule. And the golden rule is basically the second greatest commandment in action. Do you remember what the second greatest commandment is that Jesus told us about? The first is love the Lord your God. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others what you would have them do to you. That's the action that, that comes from the love, the doing. Jesus could end the sermon here, but he didn't. There's a few more connected thoughts that he wants to share, warnings that he wants to give his followers, and we'll look at those next week. But what I want you to take home from what we've talked about today is that our Father in heaven doesn't want any of us to be lost, to be separated from him forever when it comes time for the final judgment. Not the one who tries to usurp the judge's seat. He doesn't want them separated from him forever. Nor the hypocrite who hopes no one checks to see what's on the inside nor the one who's still captive to their sinful nature because of the fall. He doesn't want to lose them either. He doesn't want to lose the child who clings to his side and pesters him with requests. He doesn't want to lose the one who's too afraid to ask or the one who feels that they didn't get what they should have gotten from God when they asked. 
He loves us all. And he wants to see everyone come to him in repentance. And that's why he wants us to love each other as we love ourselves and to do for each other as we would have others do for us. He wants his kids to get along. Doesn't every parent. It makes God happy to see us loving one another. We believe God is holy, love, and light. And we, his followers, share his love and light by the way that we love. 1 John 4 says, This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. This is our mission in the world. This is what we are called to do. This is the basis for the Great Commission. And this is the law and the prophets. Love each other. Do for others. Because God loves us all. And God doesn't want to condemn anyone. Judgment must be made in the end. And he must separate the sheep and the goats. But I know it's going to break his heart. Let's be sheep. Let's teach others to be sheep through our love. And let's pray to ask God to make us that way. Lord God, we love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. But you've told us that we need to love each other. And that love needs to be manifested in action, in doing. You said through John that anyone who does not love his neighbor who they can see can't love God who they haven't seen. So help us to love our neighbor. Help us to love each other. to do for each other. Help us to honor and glorify you in everything. Let us be so filled with your love that we just shine. 
and that it's unmistakable what you've been doing in us. Shape us, Lord, into the people you would have us to be, more and more like Jesus. Because that's how your love is made complete in us. We need your Holy Spirit to change us and shape us because we definitely can't do it on our own. Give us your love so that we might share it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go and let your light shine before people. You're dismissed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.